Hey everyone, I am with Justin. Hi everybody. And it is going to be a unique podcast just because it's been a unique year. We gathered in Knoxville. We just did a podcast together. That'll be coming out later. But today is a special podcast. Jimmy Bueller, pastor of Christ Community Church. Justin Purdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church. Testing John's memory here. And John Moffitt, who I'm, that's me, pastor <laughs> of Grace Reformed Church. We got together with uh, some, of, some, some of our dear friends from 1517. Yeah. Justin, tell us a little bit about that combo. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, 1517 uh, is a ministry of some of our brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, of a Lutheran persuasion, uh, 1517 Christ for You. They have several podcasts of their own, 30 minutes in the New Testament, 40 minutes in the Old Testament. So we locked arms with our brothers, Daniel Emery Price, Chad Bird, and Eric Sorensen, to do a podcast about the Incarnation and its significance. And as you'll gather in the intro, as, as our friend Daniel said, it's six dudes around a microphone who all think they have something significant to say about <laughs> theology. And so you're going to notice that uh, there are a number of guys who are clamoring for the microphone in one sense, and, and we all are trying to offer helpful thoughts about the incarnation and why it matters for us. Well, and the reason we're clamoring is that we all love the subject. We love the we subject. We can't talk about Christ enough. Yeah, amen, <laughs> brother. And and it's a wonderful time of year, and a lot of times, I think for Christians, Christmas is kind of ruined by just absurd notions that, like, the birth narrative of Jesus is like, twas the night before Christmas, Christian style, you know? Right. And we want to talk about it from a more robust perspective, that Christmas is about redemption and and it's ultimately about what Christ came to do. That's right. And so we hope it's encouraging. Right. And if you want to know why there's noise in the background, you're going to have to listen to next year's podcast. So next year. Stay tuned to that. Goodness. 2020 review. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to your 2020 Christmas extravaganza, the incarnation extravaganza. This is the this is the uh, brave attempt that we are making right here. Six dudes who all think they have a lot to say about theology, all trying to talk to you about theology at the same time. We're gonna try to behave ourselves. So this is the I guess it, I mean it's sort of the fifteen seventeen theocast mashup, but it's. Podcast specific, it's 30 minutes in the New Testament, 40 minutes in the Old Testament, and Theocast all together. We've never done this before. Now we've been together before, but we didn't we That's didn't true. record. I I know that I've been on Theocast. I think Chad has been on Theocast. Has Eric been on Theocast? I have not. No, he's not. Boing, a listener. Boing, boing. No, you gotta be a listener yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> That's true. I have listened to your podcast. Yeah. I have. Eric, Eric is Eric is just saying, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what we're doing with Theo who? The, the the secret that people don't know is that there's a uh, we have a group a group text that is how this of course comes about. Uh, so there's a group text with oh, the six do. of us mm -hmm. that you know, there's sworn to secrecy and, and no one can ever know the contents therein. But uh, but that's that's where that's, mostly so, memes. It's mostly memes. It's mostly memes. Honest. Well, yeah. me, let, let's be honest, deep theological memes. That's right. Yeah. Very deep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, well, so we, we have it. We have we have not set this up well uh, through all that texting. Uh, people probably think we that we're going to attempt to have a serious conversation here. If they saw that text message thread, they would have little hope that this would be accomplished. But, uh, but we're gonna we're gonna give it a go. Uh, we have settled on the incarnation or the implications of uh, the the incarnation. This seems like a, a very appropriate thing to do this time of year. So I'm done playing host. 
now. So we just we just go from this yeah. point on. John, what's going on in the incarnate? Why is this a big deal? Like, I mean, like, why can't God just sort of like forgive our sins? We'll call it a good deal. Like, do we really need to him to become man, go through all of this, die, yeah. all, all that kind of stuff? Like, wh- wh- why not just say, you know what? I'm feeling like I want to forgive. It's in my nature. I'm a gracious God. You're all forgiven. Done. Right. Well, one of my favorite stories is uh, Luke five. Right. He's in the he's in the house. The friends lower the paralytic man down, and everyone in the room at this point is is packing this this room out because they've already heard about Jesus and his miracles. Of course, why these men are bringing the paralytic in, and everyone in the room is expecting Jesus to say, "You know, you're healed," and he doesn't. What does he say? He says, "Your your sins are forgiven," and the Pharisees lose their mind, and they're like, who are you to say that you can forgive sins? And then, of course, Jesus says, well, what's easier for me to say, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? And what what I love about that entire story is that Jesus kind of sets the tone straight, saying, I'm here to forgive sins, and that this is why I'm here. And the the miracles are purely just me fulfilling the prophecies of my role here, and the reason why that becomes so important, of course, later on you learn, is that Jesus can't forgive that which he hasn't paid for. And later on, the incarnation becomes, uh, it's the correction to most people's theology. You hear all the time, Jesus came to be a good man or a good teaching or whatever, but no, Jesus became our imputation, became our representative. So if Jesus does not become a man, he cannot pay for the sins of humanity. So without human form... He cannot take on human punishment. Yeah, I love that that the message given uh, to Mary is like, hey, you're going to have a son, and he will save his people from their sin. This is like the purpose behind him coming, period. I mean, I mean, the first time John lays eyes on him, he doesn't say, there's my cousin, or there's a good role model, or the, even there's a perfect man right there. That if you, want, if you ever wondered what a perfect man looked mm-hmm. like, there it is. No, he says, behold the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins take of the away world? The sins of the world. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, I think another implication, uh, something that I've been even looking at this week, as in our church, we're we're kind of looking at different gospel readings, and it can almost seem like the the birth of Christ comes out of nowhere. Uh, been really influenced by a book I'm reading that that talks about how God tends to work and loves to work through the insignificant and small. And even as we think about the incarnation of Christ, could have came with legions of angels to accomplish his purposes. And yet, as we look throughout redemptive history, uh, one of the authors that I'm reading, he said, often at the big turning points in history, what what we find is, is a pregnant woman and a, and a child of promise that ends up being a kind of a linchpin in how God is working in the world. And so... Even as we look at Mary and we think about the virgin birth, the miraculous birth of Christ, if you will, this isn't coming out of nowhere. I mean, we, we've seen this all throughout redemptive history, right? I mean, you have Isaac, you know, the child of laughter that, I mean, nobody saw that one coming, right? I would not see, you know, a man and a woman very, very old having a child, and, and, and yet we get Isaac, and then we see Hannah, who gives birth uh, to her son, who ends up anointing kings, and, and, and Moses, and even his miraculous uh, deliverance as a baby. And then 
even John the Baptist, you know, miraculous things around his birth. And then we get to Jesus and it's like, it didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> like this is, this is a pattern that, that God has. I feel like I'm stepping on Chad's toes, just talking about Old Testament stuff, but here I am. This is, this is a pattern that, that God has chosen to work in. And what I love is that Christ comes on the scene in such a theology of the cross sort of way right? That it's not what we would expect. It's not what we would plan. And yet in, in the wisdom of God that makes us look like fools, this is how he's chosen to operate, you know, through the word made flesh to dwell amongst us. And so it's, it's really beautiful and significant in the way that it shows us that God identifies with us and our, our humanness, our, our flesh, that the things that we deal with on a daily basis. It's almost as if um, the psalmist was inspired when he wrote that God has ordained praise from the mouths of infants and babies. It's almost as if yeah. he's been working that way all throughout history in That's ways fair. that that mm-hmm. often, I mean, we, we yeah. see even the disciples, you know, sort of be like, what, 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 why are you bringing children to Jesus? You know, why? And it's like, have you, have you actually read the scriptures where God is always working in this way to sure. be insignificant through, mm-hmm. you know, even things as, as small and insignificant as, as a baby. Indeed. I mean, that's what we see with, especially uh, in, in full culmination with Christ. But uh, to your point, Jimmy, when I think about, you know, the rest of the new Testament and that period of time, one of the implications of the incarnation is how uh, this so, it was so radically different than the way anybody was thinking about how God would interact with the world. And, and it really, you didn't have room for it in Jewish life of the idea of God becoming man. And you didn't have room for it in Greek life because of their view of matter being, you know, inherently evil. And yet here is how God chooses to interact. He chooses to become flesh. He chooses to uh, deal with the same sorts of sufferings that we do and the same sorts of struggles. And this is why you have for the first uh, few hundred years these great debates in church history, because it just seemed so radically different than the way people thought they should approach God and even more significantly the way God approaches us. Let me jump in here and piggyback off a couple of things that Jimmy said. And then uh, I want to bring in one of my favorite church fathers, uh, Irenaeus, and talk about what he has to teach us about incarnation. Just to uh, take what Jimmy said and to, and to run with it. You know, what you see already from, already from Genesis 1, when God makes man in his own image, you see there what I think is a prophecy of the incarnation. Luther says that you see a, a dim intimation of God's desire to become one of us when he makes Adam and Eve in his own image. So already there, you begin to see kind of the, the echoes that we're going to finally hear in full volume on Christmas Day, because God makes humanity in his image, and eventually the maker will assume the image himself. And of course, you have all sorts of allusions to God's desire to become one of us throughout the Old Testament, everything from the messenger of Yahweh, who appears. Sometimes he's called a man. Sometimes he's walking around and people don't even know that it's the messenger of <laughs> Yahweh. You know, they, they think it's just a kind of average mm-hmm. Joe Israelite walking by. And so they engage him in conversation. So as one author put it, God is always trying on the clothes of the incarnation throughout the Old Testament. He's mm-hmm. appearing as a, as, a, as a man to his people. And that's another thing. I mean, he, he shows and this is, this is, I think, one of the, the, the most beautiful, comforting things about the Incarnation. It shows that God desires an intimate presence with his people. 
Mm. He doesn't want to be some distant uh, hill, hilltop or mountaintop mm. deity, just kind of aloof from humanity. He wants to be right in the thick of things. And we see that in the Garden of Eden when he's walking around. We see that with the tabernacle. The tabernacle is smack dab in the middle of the, the camp of the Israelites. So God actually wants to dwell in the midst of his people. He doesn't want to be far away. Mm -hmm. He wants to be near and accessible to them. So to kind of keeping all that in mind, you jump to the to second century and to the writings of Irenaeus. What Irenaeus does is he says that what, what we have in the incarnation is Christ recapitulating, redoing, recreating, and fulfilling everything that happened before. So he is, mm -hmm. he's not only just the new Adam or the last Adam, as Paul calls him, but he is all humanity compressed into one so that what he does is recapitulate the history of humanity and of Israel. So he not only does it over and does it perfectly, but he does it as the God man. And in that way, he brings humanity to the perfection that God always desired us to have. And we wouldn't have that without the or incarnation. So as some of the church fathers put it, we gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Because in Christ, yeah, we now have not only the perfect human, but we have the perfect human who is also at the same time God. That, that awesome Irenaeus theology when it comes to the incarnation, that Christ has recapitulated all things in himself so that when we see him, we see, we see the human that God desires all of us to be and that we become as we are baptized into his flesh and become one with him. I just have to go on record in saying, if, if you've listened to Theocast and I've said Irenaeus, I repent. It's Irenaeus from here on out. <laughs> Irenaeus, John. Get say, however you, say it however you want to say it. It's just the way we Texans yeah. pronounce it. Yeah. Japers, John. Japers, John, get it right. Yeah, now, I, I, I do think that this, this is a really important point, is that, I mean, how many times have you heard people try to explain to you know, lay people or children or other theologians explain like what it means to be made in the image of God. And they'll be like, oh, well, it means that you have a, you're creative or you have consciousness or whatever, right? Uh, all these different things. It's really quite simple. God formed man in the image of Christ. God did not just like say like, oh, I'm going to make this arbitrary thing, this form, and then eventually all come as that. Like, I mean, God, God knows these things, right? So you are made in the image of God in the sense that this is what you look like Jesus. That's what you, that's what you look like. Uh, your yeah, arms and legs and eyes. Image, right? Yeah. He is the image and we are made in his image. Yeah. It's a, it's a yes. very, right. it's an important distinction to, Absolutely. to, to make. And, and what happens in the incarnation yeah. is that this is where the the work of salvation really gets underway because in in the in the yep. incarnation because we are made in that image and because god is the father of christ christ then is united to all of humanity in the incarnation it, like mm -hmm. at, right from right from the start he isn't just some he's just not just another guy uh he is his right. god is the father and he has united him to all of us uh, in in the incarnation I mean, the gospel itself is wrapped up in the incarnation, and I'm not trying to be the guy that comes in and overstates it, but I think for a lot of Christians, at least that I've been around, and maybe in my young life, the birth narrative of Jesus is kind of like the Christian version of Twas the Night Before Christmas, you know, and that's kind of the, the significance that it bears. You know, we read it once a year on Christmas Eve, and it's it's sentimental, it's meaningful in some way, but 
I think it's incredible to think that redemption is inextricably linked to God the Son taking on flesh, and that's what we're celebrating in the incarnation at Christmas time. And like we love to talk about Jesus being our representative. Well, it, he is only our representative because he became one of us. He became a man in order to represent men. And like we haven't talked about the the law yet, but I'm thinking about Galatians chapter four, verses four and five, where we're told that Christ was born under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law. Well, men are born under the law. And so he's born as a man under the law in order to live a life of perfect obedience, to keep his father's every word and fulfill it for us. So when we herald from the rooftops, you know, Christ is our righteousness and those kinds of things, we can only say that because Christ came and was a human being and accomplished everything that he did in, in our place. And so this is a big deal. I mean, you can't, you can't overstate the importance and the implication of the incarnation. No way. No incarnation means no salvation because no no manger means Word. no cross. Well, I think it becomes. I mean, if you look at Genesis three, Genesis three, when when God promises the seed of Eve, right? From you will come a seed. The question becomes: if you're the if you've had no knowledge of the Bible and you're reading it for the first time, your your question is: well, who's that? Because Adam and Eve lived in utopia. They destroyed it. God promises to fix it. Well, how is he going to do that? It's the the whole Old Testament leading in the New Testament is the anticipation of the incarnation of the one who's fixing that which man destroyed. So it becomes the point of the Bible. Yeah. You think about how hard it must have been for the, um, or, or at least how, how challenging it could have been for the early apostles to stand so strongly on this idea that Jesus really did become flesh. And yet if you read, I mean, mm-hmm. all of the writings of the New Testament, they just are not shy. I mean, they, you know, they're as abundantly clear as they can be. I mean, how many times do we read, we touched him, we saw him, we heard him, we mm-hmm. we felt him? I mean, it's very, very fleshy. It's very, very tangible. They want to emphasize the word became flesh. Uh, the author of Hebrews, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise known as Apollos, uh, wants us to know. <laughs> Amen. I thought it was wants Mary. us to know <laughs> that because God has become flesh, that God knows what it's like to even be tempted as we are, which is a a completely uh, mind-blowing thought. And yet, uh, of course, a very comforting thought, which is why the author of Hebrews decides to mention that. And it's why it's one of the most quoted verses in my life, to think that God actually really does know the ins and outs of human experience in that way is so far removed from the way that we're naturally prone to thinking about the deity, you know, yeah. The, the great yeah. God. Yeah, I mean, Chad was talking about the nearness of God earlier. I mean, you're you're picking up on that too, Eric. That God is not just distant and cold and disconnected from His people. He's not some despot sitting off in the heavens. He is personally involved in the lives of His people so much so that He came and entered into this wasteland called fallen Earth and experienced all of the pain, the suffering, the sorrows that we experience yet without sin. And I mean, it's a tremendous comfort. You know, the, the Christ of Gethsemane is a comfort to people who are suffering and who are hurting because he, he knows our grief and he knows the anguish of the soul and the dark night of the soul and all of those things. And he's personally involved in our lives and knows our suffering, yet he is without sin. He is the great and compassionate high priest. He's gentle and lowly and tender toward those who are suffering and toward those who are in pain. None of that's true you know, if, if the incarnation is not a thing. And praise God that it is. It's worth making explicit uh, 
uh, I'm sure what all of our listeners know, but it's, it, it's one of those things that needs to be said. God did not become disincarnate at the ascension of Jesus. So the Son of God yeah. remains Amen. human flesh and blood. I do think I, yeah. I've encountered this multiple times. He has times. a body. Still. He has a body. Yeah. So I, I think you know, people, I don't, they don't mean to hold a, a, a false opinion, but they just, they just don't realize that they do. But they'll think, oh, okay, Son of God came down from heaven. He became one of us. And then when he went back to be with his father, he sort of you know sloughed off his human nature because he didn't need it anymore. No, from, right. from the moment that uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, and the Son of God entered into her womb and became a human being. From that yep. point, forever and ever, God is fully human. The Son of God has assumed yep. our nature, and he will, has not and will never lose our nature. So right now we can mm -hmm. say that a man sits on the throne of God. It is to a man that we yeah. pray. It's to a man that we appeal as our great high priest. That is not saying he's not God. Mm -hmm. He is. However, he is fully human. So as one of my, yeah. uh, one of my favorite Ascension hymns puts it, Thou hast raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. So there we are with him because he has taken our humanity into himself. So when we look, yeah. when we think about the throne of God and Christ at the right hand of God, a man sits beside yeah. God. And you, know, you, know and, this, you know what that does, Chad, is because this bothers me to no end. It gives you permission to talk about your own body your own humanness in a positive way. So there's so many, there's so many people that are like, oh, I just can't wait to be get, to get rid of this stupid carton that my soul's locked in, you know, and you're yeah, going to go, you're going to go fly away, bro. Yeah. But you're going to become something altogether different, right? I mean, yeah. Paul says like, yeah, mm -hmm. you're going to be changed. Like in the twinkle of eye, it's going to happen, but it's not, it ain't going to be that different. Like you're going to be changed. Like, don't get me wrong. Sinlessness is a radical change. Okay. I mean, at least for me, for me, this is a big change. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, no yeah. sin. This is going to flight. Yeah. Yeah. This will be, this will be quite a transformation, but it gives you permission to, to realize that what God initially said is very good. He is, he intends to bring you back to that, not bring you, not do something all over again. He's like, you know what? That actually wasn't that good. I'm going to come up with a whole new thing. No, Christ comes and, he takes on flesh, and in that, yeah, he makes the human form something that we can then say, like, you know what, that is good. Like, it's 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 flawed, it's marred, it's got sin, it's sin, but that's what needs to go. Not not this sort of like weird Gnostic idea where you're like, just can't wait until exactly. you know we all we all grow wings and play harps and and whatever it is that you think is going on. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, like Jesus is God, and God is a man. Uh, at the right yeah. hand, at the right hand of the Father, mm -hmm. and when we when we are mm -hmm. yanked out of our graves, we're gonna have bodies, and they're gonna be very much these bodies. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called "Faith Versus Faithfulness: A Primer on Rest." And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what does it mean to live by faith alone. We wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. And if you've been encouraged by our ministry and would like to help us, you can join one of our support teams. This is a monthly membership where we provide additional content each week, and your support is what allows us to keep spreading the good news of resting in Christ. You can learn more at theocast.org. Well, and that's, I mean, it's, if we're not too busy being Pelagian, it's because we're too distracted by being Gnostic. I mean, that's, that's, 
if we're not too busy trying to achieve our own righteousness, it's because we're distracted trying to get like into this like spiritual nirvana. And frankly, I think that the incarnation really blows up both of those ideas, that the incarnation shows us that Christ has to come and live in our place and achieve that righteousness that we could never. And also it shows us that, you know, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is with Jesus with Thomas, you know, classic doubting Thomas. You know, nobody talks about doubting John the Baptist, but we'll talk about doubting Thomas all day. But doubting Thomas, you know, what what is Jesus' solution? Come here. Come here and and feel the holes. Touch my side. That that Jesus gives us physical things, that God gives us physical things that we can look to tuss, tach, or taste and touch. You know, this is something I say to our church every week is that I've just told you for, you know, 30 minutes or so about God's great love and grace for you in Christ Jesus, and now you get to taste it, you know, in the form of, of bread and wine, that that we're not just these, we're not spiritual beings having this weird physical existence, but but rather that God God is the God of all, you know? He, he is spirit, but he is the God of all creation. Yeah. By the way, let me, yeah. I, I want to defend Thomas uh, also. <laughs> I just want to, first of all, this is the Thomas that when Jesus is like, yo, I'm going to go heal Lazarus, everyone's like, we're going to die. And Thomas is the one that says, let's go mm-hmm. die with him. Yeah. That's Thomas that says that. Thomas <laughs> says, let's, let's go die with this dude. Yeah, right. And then when he watches this dude actually die and, uh, you know, like get crucified, beat to death, been put in a grave, and they're like, no, not for real, man. Like, he rose, he rose from the dead. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to need to see that. We're like, what a doubter. Like, <laughs> right. come on, man. Yeah. Absurd lack of faith. Wait a minute. You mean, you mean Christians can be fickle and we can not be consistent? Is that what you're saying? I think so. I think we can. Uh, so another big, big thing, I, when Chad was talking earlier, came to mind. In thinking about the fact that, that the one seated at the right hand of God, seated on the throne of God, is a man. It's, it's kind of a big deal to use the language of Paul in Ephesians that we've not only been united to Christ, but we've been raised and we have been seated with him, right? At, at, I mean, in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, it speaks to just how incredible this redemption is, that we as, as human beings in flesh, the way that we are, have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ and will be like him and will reign with him forever, and so we see it, in our big brother, Jesus Christ, we see what our eternal destiny is. It's pretty epic. Just a, a remarkable thought that's, again, tethered to the incarnation, tethered to this Christmas time stuff. It's not just a baby in a manger. There's like eternal fallout and implications of all this stuff. I can't help but think in this, uh, as we're discussing this, um, you know, what we tend to do when we come across people that are suffering and going through hard times is we tend to emphasize a very true attribute of God's character, which is that God is in control. We say that all the time. God is sovereign. He is in control. Yeah. Now, we don't deny that. You know, we say amen. But I will yeah, tell yeah. you just from personal experience and from, you know, close to 14 years of pastoral ministry, that when people are really suffering, uh, I found the incarnation to be a tremendously comforting 
doctrine for people in the midst of hardship. They don't need, it might be that it's good to be reminded of that, but I have found people really need to be reminded that God is the God who is with us, that God is the God who mm-hmm. it does understand. Like he's not, he's not removed from this situation. And so I found that it's almost more impactful for people not necessarily to think about God sort of being in control because that's a kind of a mind blowing mm-hmm. thought that we really can't even understand. Cause then that, that tends to just lead to more questions. Well, if he is, then why this, this, and that, that's right. But God yeah. is with us. God knows what it's like to go through this. Mm-hmm. He suffered loss. He understands what it's like to be abandoned. That is a tremendous resource for comfort in the midst of life mm. in which we all will suffer. We all will face loss just as Christ has done uh, before us and on our behalf. Well, even even Christ in the garden when he's, you can hear this language of anxiety, even re- reaching out to the Father, is, is there another way this can be done? Let, let, let this cup pass from me. And then Peter, in Second uh, Peter 5, when he says, uh, cast your anxieties on him, and I love the reason. Not because it's wrong to doubt a sovereign God. How dare you question his power? He says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let let God carry your anxieties. And how do you cast him on him? You have to tell him, that this is what makes me anxious. This is what makes me scared. This is what makes me nervous. And he says, God will carry that because he cares for you. I, that's, that's good, Eric. I love that. Yeah, no, I think I think mm-hmm. that you need both of those for there to be any comfort. I mean, if you just tell someone God is sovereign, He's in control, there's a, that's actually not comforting at all, uh, <laughs> apart from a God who knows what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. So, so if you say this per, mm-hmm. if you say somebody has the power to help you, but they don't know anything about what you're feeling, anything about what you're experiencing, they could help you, but they have. They have no, they they don't relate to it at all. In fact, they're so high and above you. I mean, they could help you, but I mean, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I think mm-hmm. that the sovereignty uh, of God is only comforting if you have a God who also like not only can He do something about it, but that He knows what it's like. like he's been there, and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. now so this is not just a God who has power, but that can actually sympathize with what I'm suffering. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, we were talking about this the other day, and he said, God outside of Christ reveals him is, is terrifying, right? I mean, as you, as you talk about, um, you know, sovereignty, it's like, yeah, that it's like, but when, when God comes to us in Christ, what we see is r- really this, this thing of beauty, <laughs> um, this, this amazing, I love um, in Luke chapter 2, you know, when Jesus is presented at the temple, um, when, when Simeon holds him, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I forget, I think it might be Rembrandt who portrays this, this incident, um, this moment, where in that painting, you know, the listeners, they can go look it up and, you know, there's Simeon and it's like he's afraid to, to hold or touch Jesus and that there's this, such this sense of like reverent awe that, that God would allow him to see his salvation, <laughs> like physically, physically see it. And so 
when Christ comes incarnate, it, it, he, he reveals to us the nature, the character of God that it's like, man, what's God like? Well, look at Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what God is like. You know, the person and work of Christ, that's, that's what God is like. Isn't that something that, uh, that Simeon could, would refer to Jesus in that way? My, my eyes have seen my salvation. That, that he doesn't yeah. say, like, what yeah. this guy's going to do is my salvation. Or this is, he just says, that, yeah. that kid so right is. there, yeah. that's my salvation. That's, like, that's what is. that is. That's a pretty good <laughs> mm-hmm. name for Jesus. Uh, my salvation, that's my who he salvation. is. Doesn't that tell us just about everything about God, that the ultimate theophany is Mm. the incarnation? Mm. The ultimate Mm -hmm. revelation of who God is, is as this little baby, or this man, Mm. or this victim upon the cross. Uh, A human, human being is the ultimate revelation of God. A human being who came to sympathize with our weaknesses, who came to to bear our sins, that, that if you really want to know who God is, that's where you look. You don't look on Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. You don't even look in, in Genesis chapter one, this great, powerful God who's speaking everything into existence. If you really want to know the fullness of who God is, then you look at the manger, or you look at the cross, or you look at everything in between, that this is the, the final and the ultimate revelation of everything that God wants to know about mm-hmm. us is found exclusively in this one human being. So it's it's pretty pretty phenomenal to me that that is the way that God God chose to reveal Himself, and at the mm. same time, it's it's revelatory of what God desires for us. Because if He shows us Himself in the incarnation, then He also shows us what His desire is going to be for us. That He wants us mm. to be as Christ is, mm. and we will be in the in the resurrection. We will mm. receive the glorified body that He already has. So the incarnation is this revelation, but also it's a, it's a revelation of not just God, but of what God desires for us in the resurrection. This sounds so different from what you hear during Christmas, right? The birth of Christ. Most of what comes from Christianity is our significance before God, and that is basically calculated by your performance. And what you guys are saying is, no, we're talking about the significance of Christ and what Christ has done in his person, as a real human being, the significance of what Christ has done for us, which, you know, we could do an, we could do a podcast for three days and not come to the end of the significance of the incarnation of Christ. And our significance does not matter. <laughs> what, what we have done or who we are this holiday season, it's meaningless when you think it compared to who and what Christ has done. But by the way, if I can just quickly give a plug for uh, some of Luther's sermons that I think you can find most of them online. You can just Google Luther's Christmas sermons. Uh, You will never find anyone who gets more into the incarnation than Luther around Christmas time in his sermons. They're just phenomenal. So uh, check them out. I think most of them are actually accessible for free. So definitely worth reading as you get uh, as you you ponder the incarnation this uh, Christmas season. Who's Luther? I don't know who that is. Well, uh, that helps my sermon prep for this weekend. So thanks. I'll take that. <laughs> hey, if we're, if we're plugging books uh, along the, along these lines, if you've never read On the Incarnation by oh, Athanasius, yeah. Got if, to. if yeah. any of our listeners have not yeah, read so, that, then yeah, uh, must. I try to read it uh, every December. Uh, in fact, I need to I need to pull that off the shelf and read it again. It's 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 short. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a volume out that has a a very brief and and very helpful introduction by by C.S. Lewis. 
So, uh, so check that out. It's one of the best things that I've ever read and reread and then reread again on the incarnation because he, he just brings out so much that we haven't even had a chance to get to, but all these implications of the incarnation. Well, another book, another book that's really good is the, is the Bible. I know we all love that one. Oh, oh nice. So good. nice. He did it. Oh, I, I, oh. I, I had to do it JP, JP, um, just doing that Baptist thing, only, man. Hey. Baptist, it's the only must-read in the history of the world. Amen? Come on. Amen? Come no, on. no creed but the Bible um, on this so, guy. That's right, man. Come on, dog. It's called John now. the Baptist. But it is like God wrote the thing. Like when you, when you trace the story of it from Genesis as it unfolds, like human beings are created in God's image and through man, sin enters the world and the creation is cursed. And then throughout the, the Old Testament, God is unfolding revelation. And the question that was alluded to earlier is who is this promised seed, this seed of Eve who's going to come and crush the head of the snake? who's going to redeem humanity. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jimmy, the passage you read from Luke 2 is just so great, man, that when Simeon lifts him up and says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared. You know, he's a, he's a light for the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. We see this promised seed is here now. You know, there was 400 years of silence, and then an angel appears to a young virgin and says, you're going to have a son, and he's going to save his people. And He's here. The promised seed has arrived. And then as a man, he comes and makes atonement for sin. He takes upon himself our corrupt nature and all of our wickedness and all those things and atones for that and bears the wrath of God for that. But then he lives a perfect life in obedience to God. And through a man, the curse is reversed. So that, that great curse that was put upon all of creation and creation is groaning, that occurred because of a man. And now the second Adam, the better one, came and reversed the curse. It's like we sing of the second coming of Jesus Christ, you know, the joy to the world. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that's, that's, that's one of the big things, too, is, is if you're into the church calendar at all, you know, now some people get a, little, get a little annoying with this sort of stuff when they rebuke you for saying anything about Christmas during, you know, Advent. But technically what you got is you got mm-hmm. Advent, which is anticipation over the, the coming Messiah. Yeah. You have Christmas, the arrival. And then we just live in perpetual second Advent where we are now awaiting the yeah. return, right? But but the what the incarnation does in conjunction with the resurrection is I'm waiting for the return of that body. Yeah. Like that exactly. body that, that came in the incarnation and then that popped out of the grave and ascended the Father... That yep. like the advent that I'm living in now is only a thing because the incarnation is a thing. Yeah. yeah. I think the only positive side of, of Christmas is that it creates this anticipation in people. We're all looking forward to this day. And I just, you know, just turn that and say that anticipation you have and then that let down on December the twenty sixth, when Jesus comes back, which we should be anticipating and, and Peter encourages us to anticipate his return. There will be no letdown. It will be a glorious, glorious restoration of all things. And so, you know, maybe that's the one positive. I'm kind of a Grinch when it comes to Christmas, but that might be the one positive I take out of it is that anticipation. <laughs> I love I love Christmas. I'm, I'm, I'll make up for it. I'm a, I'm a big yeah. Christmas guy. Yeah. yeah, I'm too. I'm I'm definitely into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it a lot. Um, I I eat too much, but that's that's for another time. But that's you know, standard we, behavior for me. I mean, I it's guess if I I guess I could be reminded once a year that about the incarnation, like God becoming flesh and dwelling in my guess. Yeah, I guess fine. I guess once a year is okay. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. Well, awesome, guys. Well, I think this has been a, a, a good conversation. I, I, maybe a little bit different than what uh, people were anticipating for a, sure. a Christmas special. Uh, they're like, man, they're talking a lot about the Old Testament, talking a lot about like the second coming, the resurrection, miracles. What about, uh, you know, Mary? She needed to come up. Uh, next year, we're going to talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary, so we decided to save that's it right. all for that. That's next year's... No, 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 no. next year's special. So that should be good. Uh, well, guys, this, is, this has been fun. Uh, maybe maybe we'll do something like this uh, before... Maybe we'll make it an annual thing. Sounds I like good. it. We'll see how that's people good. respond. Yeah, people might good. be like, never again. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay. Anticipation mounts. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas.